0: Hello and welcome to episode two of Pardon the Sound. This is Kyle Sievertson, and your host. On today's episode, we have John Erishman. He's a guitar player, singer, songwriter. He's been playing all over the Twin Cities area for quite a while now. He gives lessons. He does tribute shows. He's in a group called Johnny James and the Hall of Fames. Um, they've done tribute shows for Led Zeppelin. They've done them for Pink Floyd. They've done them. Uh, currently, they're working on a Queen show where Johnny's playing the Brian May parts. Um, obviously, he does the Jimmy Page parts. He's all over the place. He's a literal encyclopedia of the guitar. Um, he's a great teacher. Part of what I love about Johnny, uh, you'll notice on this interview, I really sit back and let Johnny you know, go through his thought process. Because me, I have taken lessons from Johnny, and he is a phenomenal teacher. And part of what I love about Johnny's teaching is he tells me the information and the way he talks about playing his instruments and what they mean to him and how he feels about those sorts of things. I just want to sit back and listen. So you'll, I, you know, I feel like I didn't talk a whole lot in this interview because I just really enjoy hearing the way John talks about the instrument. Um, We talked about the process of learning music and um really right away we get into uh his new project with a band called Everest. He's in a group called uh, Rubber Soul which is a Beatles tribute where they follow everything to a T. They're playing the same instruments, they're doing all the harmonies, playing all the parts that the Beatles played and that group came out with an album called Fort Road. They are called Everest and they tried to record everything with the same exact process as the Beatles. In the studio. So we got right into that right out of the gate. And it was really, really fun for me to talk to Johnny about his process. And just overall growing up, learning guitar—you know—struggles he sees with people trying to learn guitar, whether it be the action, which is the strings being too far away from the fretboard, kids playing shitty instruments, and it deterring them from playing. Um, we really got into all of it, and it was a really—it was a great joy. For me. So, uh, let's go.
1: to I think, I think I wrote five for the um, came to me pretty quickly sure. because I was on a deadline and I needed two tunes for the you know recording session the next day yeah <laughs> so I kind of had that fire to write them and it just came yeah it was real quick kind of an awesome awesome brilliant moment I wish I had those more often but I think it came from You know, just necessity, really. Shoot, I have to at least something bring something new to bring to the studio. Sure. Tomorrow, I I think it was like the night before when I finally wrote uh, a couple of those tunes. I think it was uh, the opening track and um, uh, all returned. I wrote each of those in like probably 15 minutes. Each or? Yep. Very cool. And bring that just a little closer there? There we go. Yeah, so... Um, the We just kind of had the basic tracks, you know, form of the song, and then lyrics and chords, and then Brian and I would bring them into the studio, and we would just play on an acoustic guitar, kind of run through the song, for the first time. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the other band members are, that's the first time they heard the songs, you know? So we kind of did that. (laughs) I mean, it saved us a lot of time, but we also wanted to keep the spirit of, you know, those early Beatles records where typically John or Paul would kind of do the same thing and bring a song in. And, you know, George would fumble, get the chords and Ringo would kind of start mapping out the beat. Sure. And it just came together, you know, and, and kept that um, kind of raw energy, you know, of, you know, early demos. If, if you ever have recorded a demo of a song, it often has that same kind of spirit to it. You know, and you're, if you think what I found, if you, if you work too much on pre-production of a song, it kind of tends to lose that in some ways that early spark and energy
0: do you feel like the spontaneity hmm, how spontaneous it comes up kind of creates ideas too that are more Mm -hmm. original than kind of sitting there with pre-production or arranging you guys Mm -hmm. did you overdub a lot
1: for it um all of the basic tracks so drums bass uh my rhythm guitar mike's rhythm guitar um those were all done live, and then we would, like if it was one of my songs, I would just sing a scratch vocal part sure. over, just to keep everyone kind of, together. including myself, on track. And then, you know, the overdubs, we we did, you know, add lead vocals later, and, I mean, just like the Beatles did it, you know, then the harmonies came on top of that. And sometimes we did it together, though, you know, the lead and harmonies would be recorded at the same time for vocals. you just don't have yeah correct for vocals you just don't have the control you have to be really really precise and you have to sing really well together to be able to do that all live mm-hmm. so which you know we're used to thankfully useful used to singing a lot of harmonies doing all the beatles songs that we've done um sure yeah so And then, yeah, lead guitar, of course, was overdubbed later, and keyboards. um, Dave Gores played some keys, and I played keys on a few other tunes. I guess just read the liner notes, but. (laughs) Sure, sure. (laughs) Um, Sitar, uh, Brian had an old sitar. It's a beautiful instrument that he let me kind of get used to for a week. I'd never played one before yeah so the first day was just tuning the thing <laughs> I think it has like over thirty strings or something like that. It's pretty unique, but it's great once I figured out how to tune it um thanks YouTube <laughs> <laughs> and it it has all these sympathetic strings underneath that they drone and you know kind of create that droning sound, yeah. and it's just kind of over one. C chord in this case. Um but once it was tuned up, those strings, everything just came to life and you would just you didn't even have to touch the instrument and it just just took off. It was really neat. So
0: So it's almost like an open drone tuning mm-hmm. in a way. That's very cool. It
1: was, it was. And then yeah, just you do the melody on top of I think it's maybe four or five strings that you play the melody on and really unique beautiful instrument. That was fun, getting to do that on a, a couple tracks. Definitely. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm really happy, really happy with how it turned out. And um, just the, the process, I think I would just do that all over again as far as how we brought the songs in. And just that, that vibe and that energy that those basic tracks have, I think is really powerful.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a very organic process, and the record sounds that way too. It sounds, mm-hmm. you know, very authentic um, in that way. Um, so let's go back a little bit. So when you started playing guitar, when did that all start? And do you consider yourself more of a writer, a guitar player? What comes first in your book of tricks? Because you do a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah. I started playing when I was about 12, I think, maybe 13. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was really, really serious about it from the first day of playing. And um, it was a Christmas gift. It was like a mini Gibson Flying V. Sure. A tiny little thing with teensy frets, and it was a bitch to play. But <laughs> I figured out how to tune it, I think. Right, we didn't have YouTube I then. I don't really remember how I figured that out. I didn't even have <laughs> internet, you know, that was geez. Sure. Over twenty years ago, I guess for me. So So I couldn't just Google how to tune a guitar. <laughs> right, right. And we didn't
0: have like a cell phone app either. No, um, no cell phone. <laughs> which those are nice now. Yeah, um, for sure. So I think it came with a tuner. That yeah. probably helped. I don't but really even so remember. if you don't have someone to show you how to use one of those mm-hmm. that can be pretty foreign if you don't have a book to know which string is which mm-hmm. for sure especially for like a 12 year old yeah who's more interested in playing than figuring that out
1: mm-hmm.
0: probably out of the box and then you realize it doesn't sound that good that way for so sure yeah that's at least how it was for me when i was learning it was yeah, you're you're playing something like smells like Teen Spirit, but it doesn't sound anything <laughs> like that. And it was mostly because the guitar was never in tune. Yeah, when I started, which was horrible for my whole family. Yeah,
1: that's important. And I've yeah. I've taught privately as well for I don't know how many years, fifteen years or something. But I've found that one of the biggest um, issues with like beginner guitar players is that their instruments are so crappy. Right, you don't mm-hmm. want to spend three grand on a Les Paul for a beginner kid, typically. Yeah. <laughs> um, But, you know, you've oftentimes got instruments where the action is way too high, you know, half yes. an inch high, and you can't even really press it down, especially with children's fingers. And yeah. So that really has been a deterrent for, I've seen it for a lot of my past students. I like just... Having a bad instrument and it's not fun to play, you know?
0: Yeah, my... uh my parents, I, my sister was an awful student. She took piano lessons for years and years and years, and it was evident that she was not going to take it any further, so they gave up. So when I wanted to play guitar, it was, hey, I want to play guitar. And they were like, well, we're not going to spend the money to do that. It doesn't, you know, you'll give up, and then we'll have invested the time and money and blah, blah, blah. Well then one of my aunts finally gave me, like you say, a really crappy guitar. Mm-hmm. And uh it was like a classical nylon string acoustic and then about a year into it my parents were just like, Yeah, we we gotta get him something that stays in tune. This is this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. He keeps playing it and it just <laughs> it sounds awful, Help but he's self. trying. <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah. <laughs> so what what led you to want that for Christmas? Was it a surprise or
1: uh it. It wasn't, really. I mean, i that's the only thing I asked for sure. I think for a couple of years. Um, I had a friend, still have a friend, Mason, who he was my best man at our wedding, and yeah. we're still really tight, but he started playing a few, maybe a year before me, so when I was at his house, I kind of, ooh, what's this over here, you know, I'd pick it up, and we started playing together, which was such a blessing because we were able to push each other you know as we were learning the instrument just to like who can play this song this week you know that kind of thing so that was great Um, and i think a couple of the other things that were really important for me just you know accelerating so quickly was not only having you know like a brother to kind of just be you know, we energize each other and, you know, push each other to just get better really, really quickly. Um, but also at the time I was living in rural Iowa and I don't even know how close my nearest neighbor was. So sure, I didn't have kids around to play with. You know, I was typically come home from school, you know, 30 minute ride from Clear Lake to where I lived in fertile Iowa, <laughs> um, literally. Um, but so I'd come home, and you know, I would maybe go hunting or something, and play guitar. You know, I was—that's all I did. Hung out in the woods and hung out by myself, and got to know music really, really well. And that, that was also one of the one of the blessings too that that I had. <laughs> not having friends around in <laughs> you retrospect, you can't really, yeah, you can't, it's not really a social instrument, you know,
0: right. That's, that's learning interesting to play
1: it initially. Anyway, you, you really have to focus. <laughs> well, yeah. And to yourself. really get,
0: to get the most out of it too, you have to have a solid foundation. At least mm-hmm. I think the players that are in my mind, at least, and I'll ask you kind of what your opinion of a great player is eventually here, but i in my mind the players that are most fun are the ones that can take risk and find new things while they're playing live and you know i prefer to see jam bands live these days because i like the risk-taking and without a solid foundation of probably a lot of time in your room by yourself and just really being dedicated to the instrument that just Mm -hmm. doesn't happen on the same level Mm -hmm. um obviously Musicians make a decision to be that kind of musician too, mm-hmm. so it's not a a yes or a no thing. Um, but but Is your yeah, dog okay.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: he's chewing on something. He does that. He just hacked up a little bit. Okay, he's good. Oh, did he? He's good. Yeah, he'll be he'll be fine. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and also just not only being remotely isolated from human contact Um, (laughs) like I said before it wasn't I didn't have many distractions you know we had TV of course but I didn't have a computer at the time where I could just or you know really video games I wasn't really into that so I was yeah kind of lucky just like that was my outlet of entertainment too and I look forward to it every day I would actually print off like tablature you know At school during the day in the library and come home with a new stack of songs to learn you know so Mm -hmm. um (laughs) what kind of songs were you learning when you started oh gosh all
0: over the map i'm sure
1: i still have like a shoebox of my old tabs i don't oh yeah it's funny i just i just looked at them the other day but it was like you know nirvana tunes and and come as you are and stuff like that. And the first tune I I picked out was the Star Spangled Banner. Mm-hmm. Um I was I was really into Jimi Hendrix and and the Beatles. Um the Beatles definitely like changed my world like a lot of other people too, but you know, when I heard them I was probably 12, so not much earlier, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah that just turned me on to music and classic rock and that that era that just the sound was so beautiful and like almost just tangible and I don't know you're asking you know what makes a good guitar player but I just think music and and records my one of my like I don't know High standards, or maybe like a litmus test, or something. For me, I always think about you hear like a guitar tone, like
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know something off Revolver, where those guitars are so chimey, and it's starting to get a little bit heavier. Um, but if I think if you hear a guitar sound or whatever it might be, a tone of an instrument, and it's almost like you can taste it in your mouth, like that's that's mm-hmm. the epitome of record and um, recording and, and tone of an instrument, you know, so interesting, that's something that I really strived to achieve. in making this Everest album too. sure like listening back, you know, I, my, one of my references was revolver, and Abbey Road, um, rubber soul, those three records I listened to a lot before we Recorded and while I was doing the, you know, post-production stuff, engineering mm-hmm. um, and editing and just, you know, trying, to, we use good microphones and good equipment and vintage gear and all that. But really, there's a lot that happens after you get that that signal, you know, from the microphone to your, your board or whatever you're using to capture the, the audio. hmm but I was really, really trying to get that like, tangible, um, kind of uh, full-body sonic, just the whole, the, you know, um, it's hard to put into words, but I think, like I said, something like that's on your palate that you can almost taste in your mouth. mm mm-hmm. You know, when you hear it, do you know what I mean? Like, have you heard that know, before? I kind
0: of know. I kind of know what you mean. For me, for me, the and it's it's different records, but for me, when I'm listening to a record that really moves me, and that you know, because I, I think the question of what makes a great player or, or this or that, I think the fascinating part about your answer is obviously technical proficiency is something everybody thinks about and then they think about style and this and that but it's more than that like for me is composition as a whole and how it fits into that Mm -hmm. the stuff i really like if i listen to it and i do it before i go to bed it's like looking at a blue light for hours before going to sleep i can't sleep because Mm -hmm. i'm so energized by what i'm hearing yeah it's you know It's like B twelve for me. So while it's not necessarily related to a taste or a texture, it's for me, mm. it's, <coughs> it's it's energy. It you know. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was a kid, I uh I had like the uh the Walkman C D player, anti skip stuff with the really crappy headphones. Mm-hmm. And I used to put on certain records and I'd be like, Well shit, I put this on and it's like Ten thirty mm-hmm. and i couldn 't sleep for hours like mm-hmm. the rest of the night because I was so jacked up by whatever song, and for me, I would listen to the ones I really liked on repeat, mm-hmm. which I couldn't stop doing that, and I 'm still that way, so I totally know what you mean um, mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting, and I think yeah i'm I'm just really uh intrigued that you bring up more, it sounds like more of a composition thing than anything else um, as to what
1: a whole, yeah I think it all, it's all just related you know like a painting you know mm-hmm. um, whether it's a, one song or a whole album I don't think that matters as much but um, I think that you know everything from you know, first of all, you got to have a song or some kind of vehicle, you know, that this, this art, you know, that we call music, but, you know, you have to have a song, you have to have, let's say in pop music, chords, you know, melody, harmony, structure, um, lyrical content, you mm-hmm. know. And then, I mean, that has to be strong, which is, of course, it's all subjective, but you, most music fans kind of know when a song is good. And then beyond that, I think that, you know, maybe not as, I think the song has to be solid, like number one, if you can just play it on an acoustic guitar and still get some of those same tingly vibes, mm-hmm. like that's a great test testament maybe to a song right? and, and how strong it is. but. And if you look at the recording you know that's a whole nother thing but also very important to me it has to sound good and to my ears it's you know it's all that 60s and 70s stuff that that stuff sounds so great to me mm-hmm. and whether it's you know vinyl great but it's not always what i'm feeling like you know digital audio is wonderful too but certain you know techniques that they use and like we did for Whelan's drums, um, we just did what's called the Glenn Johns recording technique. Yeah, And that's just basically three mics, you know, and there's a certain sort of equidistance from the snare and things like that to keep it in phase. But, you know, it's pretty simple compared to what most people do now where everything is mic'd up. And you can, oh, I need more of this one tom here, let's bump that up. You know, we didn't want to do that because we wanted to keep it more simple and, you know, Whelan's such a great player. He was able to make that work for us because you have to have the right touch and if you're you're heavy on this certain piece of the drum kit, we can't turn it down because you're getting the whole sound at once, you know, so um, that's... You know, they did that with Ringo, they did that with John Bonham, the Stones used that. So we thought, oh, we like those guys, let's let's give that a try. The so that worked really well. But, you know, that's just one little piece of this whole record. And we just, I think the important thing is everything, every little part of it has to be at its best, you know, as much as you can. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't skimp here. Uh, we, I didn't want to, you know. It, every little, you know, piece that we put into it, we just tried to really make it right, you know, using good equipment and you know good mic techniques and having solid songs. What we we thought were solid songs, sure. um, and yeah, just we had a little bit of a template we were using with you know some kind of classic pop song structure and um, very heavily Beatles influenced of course. But I think I don't think we made something unique but keeping that classic feel. Classic feel, classic sound. Which is, you know, kinda of difficult I think to capture these days. Well yeah,
0: how many if you don't mind me asking and if you remember, how many inputs were you working with on it? Doing that because obviously Glenn John's drum mic technique is roughly three mics, like mm-hmm. kick snare over shoulder is kind of, or you have the kind of crotch mic or whatever, if I remember correctly. Yep, yep. But, um, uh, yeah. How, how many inputs did so, you have if you were doing, you know, your guitar live with the drums and bass and the foundation with a scratch vocal? Do you remember?
1: Not that many, actually.
0: <laughs> I would imagine I think we had
1: a 24-track... Hello. Get I think we had a 24-track board that we were running into. Um, gosh, I don't think we used much more than... I feel like eight inputs, maybe? Sure. Because what we did was we ran all of the drum inputs into a separate mixer... So we had more control over those levels. It's only three mics, but we wanted them to be balanced. And then, so we were getting one drum signal into the board. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe we did that too because we just didn't have that many inputs on our board that we're using. I don't don't remember, but yeah, yeah, it was pretty minimal. And gosh, I don't even know if we had any, room mics up I think it was all just right on each instrument and then you know one line coming out from the drums pretty much Okay. I think that's how we did it yeah very cool yeah it, and it worked it was fun and everything sounds full on the
0: record too so you know I think uh, I think a lot of people who start recording now like you said they go over zealous on well i need a mic for the hi hat i need a mic for this tom and also this tom mm-hmm. and the third tom and i need you know mm-hmm. s- you know isolated miking on everything which i think for the purposes of you know in today's world where people are not asking do we have enough um is do we have the take or the cut because back in the day when mm-hmm. they recorded similar to how you guys did this mm-hmm. the end result was the musicians did we get it Mm-hmm. And now the end result is: Do we have enough? And then they will, yeah, you know, edit it. Is it passable? Is is there enough for you to work with here mm-hmm. that we can make a really great sounding record? And there's a place for, for sure. that too. I mean, yeah. Um, but there's something about a band going in and doing things live like that that's just fun. And I think probably less rare than people would. You know, assume today with you know, curmudgeons saying all pop music is just overproduced garbage. I think if they looked around a little more, they'd find more of what you're talking about than they would expect. Yeah,
1: that's probably true, but I agree with that. But it's fun, it's more fun, yeah.
0: And (laughs) and when you're in a big time studio, they're not bringing in you know, me to play guitar, they're finding some guy in Nashville who's going to show up and walk in walk out and you're gonna get what you need um right, they're sure. career musicians um so one thing i am curious about did you guys use a click track at all or did whelan maybe have one and you guys nope. just played off of him because that's what i was wondering no about. no click yeah i, I was <laughs> assuming not which is very cool um and a lot most musicians are afraid to oh, go yeah. without it now i wonder
1: when that started being a thing I don't think the Beatles used any sort of click. I mean, you could always have a metronome kind of going on in Ringo's ear or something, but
0: I don't think they did. I don't I don't either. I would imagine it you know started, started I would imagine it started heavily like when sound tools before it was pro tools or whatever they were calling mm-hmm. it then when you could have a digital, you know, just turn it on and set it right in the computer, but yeah. maybe it was before then too. I mean, I'm sure certain bands were, but it's a, that's always an interesting one for me because even the bands that a lot of bands that are trying to be, you know, more authentic raw live in their recordings, they will still have the drummer, you know, listening to a click and everyone else will follow or, you know, in their headphone mix, there's a click that they're playing to together, Mm -hmm. at least in my experience. And a lot of the, a lot of the musicians I've, you know, you know, come to know really well in this Minneapolis music scene are doing more of a polished, like, alternative rock music, too. So, mm-hmm. they, I mean, it, sometimes it calls for that, but...
1: Yeah, it's it, certainly a lot easier to do overdubs when you record it to a click, you know? Yes. I, I don't think we had any problems with that, though. It just kind of worked for us, but...
0: There's there's something, too, about, uh, you know, listening to... I don't know. I remember when I was in college for music production, and uh, you know, our one of our pr- teachers, I think it was Steve Price, he uh, great bass player in town, but he was like, "Yeah, let's listen to this Radiohead song. They didn't play this to a click."
1: Yeah, I know Steve.
0: And then, uh, yeah, they didn't play this to a click. Notice it's getting faster. Mm-hmm. It's getting faster, and it's like, well, yeah, you're right. That just feels right. He's mm-hmm. like. The Stones don't remember who played half their stuff. It, mm-hmm. you know, they just did it, and it's, you know, it's, yeah.
1: it feels great. Yeah, for so. sure. I mean, maybe the most famous is, you know, Stairway, <laughs> Stairway to Heaven, where it, that was the, one of the goals of the song, you know, listen to Jimmy Page talk about it. He wanted it to start slow and just, you know, climax at the end, but the end is so much faster. Yeah. In the beginning. Feels right, though. But it just... Yeah, you don't even really notice when you listen to it.
0: Because, it again... Things for, have to breathe a little bit. Yeah, and just one of those, it gives you energy tunes. Yeah, for um, sure. Well,
1: so, another thing that I'm, I'm proud of, too, is that we... Um, gosh, I think we did every tune in less than three takes for the basic tracks. That's very cool. Um, and maybe the most exciting moment of the record was with Sunday Afternoon, the instrumental tune. Mm-hmm. So that that came about when Whelan and I, we were just kind of messing around in between songs, whatever, we were getting ready to record something else that we had prepared. And so I think I started playing the main riff and just kind of a major pentatonic, happy little bluesy vibe. Mm -hmm. And then Whelan came in with that almost kind of a hip-hop beat, you know, that he likes to play at sound check and things like that. But it's so funky. And the other guys just started coming in, and we just ran through it one time, you know, just kind of a funk-blues thing. And then we stopped and said, we need to put this down. We need to record this. So we talked a little bit about form and what some of the cues would be but then that next time we ran it to basically take one was what you're hearing on the album Mm -hmm. and yeah that was a really awesome moment um we overdubbed just keyboard the keyboard solo i think that's what came later but everything else was live on the spot yeah and when we left that session that night um we actually had a note on the door that it said something like, I think it, it's actually in the album, um, liner notes, like a picture of that note. But it said, you guys were sound effing awesome or something like who, who are you? Like such a jam, you know, that kind of thing. So whoever was hearing us from the outside hall, the door was, was yeah. digging that track too.
0: I I love that tune. That, that song super fun. fun. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. So you play in a lot of tribute pieces, where you have tributed David Gilmore with Pink Floyd, you've done the Led Zeppelin shows with Jimmy Page. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Rubber Soul, you guys do the Beatles shows probably more than any other. Um, yep. And then, what else? You did a Brian you did the Brian May parts on some Queen. Mm-hmm. So
1: that's the newest show that th- we've added. Um, that's probably my most fun show right now. to Do the, all that Brian May stuff. It's it's been awesome.
0: Well, you've kind of you're in a way as a guitar player, kind of an encyclopedia of different players at this point. <laughs> How does that inform your own playing?
1: Yeah, I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, like <You> tell me, Because <laughs> right. What came out on. Deborah's record is is me. Right. And I guess it's I kind of tend to live comfortably in the the country folk blues vein. Sure. Um I like a lot of a lot of soul and a lot of vibe in what I'm playing. So you know, old fender amps, sweet, big fat tone. Um And, you know, lots of big bends with, you know, different kinds, types of vibrato and gosh, I don't know. So it's, it's it's hard for me to step outside myself and
0: well, yeah, because at the end of the day, and I've had this, yeah, I've had this conversation with a few people now where, uh, you know, I kind of ask that because a lot of the musicians around town, they have their own thing like Everest or, You know, I've talked to Nick Costa and Tane Graves, a few of my buddies who play around. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it kind of turns into every single person who really appreciates music from what I've experienced is they have a wide variety of music that they like. So what I always get concerned with is, well, when it comes time to write, if you like a little bit of everything, how do you decide on what you're going to do? And the common theme I'm getting is, well, what comes out of me is just what comes out of me and that's what feels right. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, kind of what you're saying, which is really interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah I agree with that. <laughs> it's, I mean, I've never sat down and said, I'm going to write a country song. Right. Just, I don't know. And then it's, the question becomes, how do you write? Does it, do you do chords first or is it lyrics? And uh, it's, it's always different for me. It's, Whatever comes first you, Sure. I think maybe for me if I had to pick one it's lyrics first interesting and then that kind of dictates maybe what the rhythm's going to be of the tune based on the the meter maybe of of the lines mm-hmm maybe the syllables I don't know what it just you just kind of get a feel maybe internally and then chords chords come so easily for me i mean i can write a chord progression you know in a few minutes but then it's like that was too easy maybe i need to make it more complicated yeah right (laughs) you know there's always that too but i have a pretty good That's maybe one of my strengths is just a really really advanced knowledge of harmony and what chords sound good here not only diatonically but you can always borrow a chord and that's fun what does it do you know just in studying all those early you know pop tunes when pop was much cool and, and your parents <laughs> hated it yeah you know, back in the late 60s um, definitely the Beatles were leagues and leagues above what everyone else was doing mm-hmm. in that world um, So I've learned a lot from from them, especially McCartney. He kind of had that maybe a little bit more of a jazzy or show tune kind of vibe in in a lot of his writing. Mm -hmm. Different chords, you know, different than just blues chords.
0: Right on. So with that, what do you have rolling? This is a question I ask everybody what do you have playing in your CD player right now? I mean, if you're still listening to CDs or what's on your vinyl player now, and
1: that's a good question. It's almost embarrassing because I rarely listen to music these days. I'm busy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just, I go through phases where I'm like really into a record right now. I've just been listening like in the car. I drive a lot like podcasts. Sure. Trying to just improve my wellness overall. I always get inspired by that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, I, m- my wife Maggie and I, if we're, we're at home, it's Friday, tonight, we'll probably play some music, have a beer, mm-hmm. and <laughs> we. you should really ask me what's on our YouTube, like, history. Yeah. <laughs> that's an interesting You can question. answer that question then. <laughs> It'll go from... If she's in control it's i gotta hear this beyonce song right now yeah you know which i love beyonce too but i i can't jam on that she she's more than one or two tunes oh yeah yeah we saw her in concert it was great
0: was that at tcf yeah i was at that too crazy (laughs) storm i I fell out of shape (laughs) about 15 minutes into it she's a monster yeah athletic human being uh, she's amazing yeah so past the
1: Beyonce, what is there?
0: Okay, then. Once you get past the two tunes, you can
1: stumble. There's probably that George Michael Christmas song. Yeah. What is it? Um.
2: Last Christmas, gave you my heart. <laughs> Very next day. Don't yeah,
0: yep. that yeah. Yeah. I remember working at. That's a jam. foot Footlocker in Austin, <laughs> Minnesota, and we had the stupid holiday playlist that would mm-hmm. go on when I was 16, and that song, every single time it came on. <laughs> oh, man, that one yeah. just
1: killed me. That's fun. He's a great singer, actually. I I actually really like really his cool. work. He was oh. great with Queen, too. We definitely listen, especially lately, we've been jamming on a lot of live Queen, like footage from their concerts. He, he uh, sang with it's Queen phenomenal. for a period? He did, yeah, he did. Filled in?
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: Yeah, before... Um Adam, Adam Lambert. What do you think of Adam? Um he's a phenomenal singer, like really obviously talented. And I just That's I don't just know. such he's, a tough he's role. He's trying so so hard and I can't imagine doing it, but just seems like a little little over the top, too much theater and not enough rock. I think Freddie was a perfect balance of those two worlds are actually very very different what? worlds i've done theater i've done rock shows, theater people are very different than rock musicians <laughs> mm-hmm. well i I think love them all
0: yeah, no doubt, but I think there's something about Freddie Mercury where like his personality the theater part wasn't ever going away and He wasn't ever trying to do that. That's just part of how he was. And Mm. he was playing music as Freddie Mercury. I think so too, yeah. You know, so for someone to try and fill in and bring that energy, Mm -hmm. it's damn near impossible. I know when I started college, Queen was actually on tour with Paul Rogers from Bad Company, which seemed like an interesting, weird mix to me at the time. I love Paul Rogers. Maybe not the best for that band. I that but. exactly. But uh I definitely remember that and I Paul Rogers keeps coming up on this podcast somehow. Really? I don't know why. He's
1: like the Kevin Bacon of the music world. I, yeah,
0: Paul Rogers. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so if you had to pick a track on uh the Everest album that you would want to embody that as a whole or you know you have people listen to it. This is the one you want to represent it first. What would it be? I should have listened to the record before
1: I came <laughs> here. <laughs> oh man, I don't know. I really like Brian's songs. Man, they're so different from mine, so I, I don't want to just pick one of mine um, because I like them better. I just Brian's songs are—they tended to be. A little bit more, almost bubblegum, which is beautiful. I I don't really write very well in that style, but like I just saw your face. That's Mm -hmm. a great track, and then the the Chet Atkins kind of guitar picking in there, just it's like right off Rubber Soul. I'm really happy with that track. Sure. That's a really. It kind of depends what mood you want, right? I mean, that's fun, that's upbeat. Um, I think a lot of people have, have liked that as one of their favorites on the record. Um, if I had to pick one of mine, I think it'd probably have to be the opening track. And I think that's kind of what we agreed that our, our single would be, you know, Mm -hmm. um, get what you give. That's one that I wrote really, really quickly. Like I mentioned earlier, just kind of came down like one of those Thunderbolt moments. And I just kind of had a feeling of that I wanted to capture. And that's all I started with in that writing session. And I wanted to, you know, pay homage to George Harrison and, you know, his his Eastern vibes and, you know, get what you give. It just kind of came out, came out of nowhere. I just, that line came out and it, you know, it's sort of like, you know, the the karma and instant karma, you know, it's a Lennon song, but mm-hmm. same kind of thing where you you get... You get what you put out, you know, in the universe. So um, that title came very quickly and it's sort of like a pyramid. So that was, you know, the top of the pyramid and everything else just came because of that title, you know, verse one, verse two, I think is always the hardest. I think John Lennon said that too. Verse one's easy, but (laughs) verse two really kind of dictates where the song is going, where it's going to end up. So I think that probably took longest, but anyway, I'm, I'm really happy with that tune. And I also pulled in some of, to be completely honest, um, some of John Lennon's tendencies to, you know, speak very cryptically, which I think he pulled from Dylan, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, you got to hide your love away. That was his tribute to Dylan. Right. Right. Um, It's like, what does that mean? But. Bob was a master at that. It it sounded poetic, but what does it mean? You know, what is he trying to say? But the greatest thing is, you just make it what you want it to be. What what you want it to be. You know, it means what what you think it means.
0: Well, I think. Well, right. And I think I've seen. I think I was watching uh, the Bob Dylan with what was the band called? It's a documentary that they just put on Netflix, like uh about his tour, but anyhow, someone asked him, they're like, "What does this song mean?" He's like, "I oh, don't know, you tell me it
1: means mm-hmm. whatever
0: you want it to mean mm-hmm. and uh it's mm-hmm. yeah, you know, for sure, there's something about that i never under I never realized that Lennon was influenced by Dylan at all. That guy shows up everywhere,
1: yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. He was a master yeah and so i don't know i just some of the some of the lyrics some of the verses definitely influenced by you know george's vibe john's um you know kind of fu cryptic tendency in his writing and like it doesn't have to mean anything it sounds great you know like he would always sell Paul was very like, no, oh, this this has to really fit. This has to be a little bit more traditional in his writing ways, I think. You know, like, you think about, hey, Jude, and um, Paul hated the line, how does it go? Um, the movement you need is on your shoulder. Um, and he was like, John, come on, what else could I put in here? And John said, no, it's perfect. I know exactly what you mean. Uh-huh. You know, so I think he influenced Paul a little bit more to be okay a little bit freer you know
0: yeah it doesn't have to be so direct mm-hmm. maybe in a way
1: sure well, very cool yeah so I'm, I'm happy with that tune in particular If I had to pick one of my own
0: very cool well that is I think we have everything we need I appreciate you uh jumping on here and talking about this yeah um thanks for having me oh uh, yeah